Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Welcome back to part two of our interview with Harvard Law professor Glenn Cohen. If you missed part one, you will definitely want to check that out in part two we'll be delving into some more fascinating, somewhat bizarre issues like posthumous sperm retrieval and what that means for inheritance rights, pre-embryos, cryopreservations, and rights of personhood. So without further introduction, back to the interview. The current legal regime looks at basically one thing, the best interest of the child. But in these cases, we're dealing with a relationship yeah. where the, the parents actually knew each other. Yeah. Hypothetically, what we could be talking about here is a, a child taken, perhaps similar, the, the, the closest example would be from a sperm bank. Right. And again, with sperm banks, it, as a practical matter, it's very difficult to get information on who uh, the donor parent is. But as we'll talk about a little bit later, I think, in many countries around the world, it's now required that if you're going to donate sperm, at age 18, you put your name in the registry, and at age 18, a child can call up and find out if they were donor-conceived, and if so, your name, your last known address, your age, and other identifying information. So the children have a right to know their biological father? In, in many parts of Europe, and most of the world, actually, the answer is yes. They have a right to at least have the information and know the person's name. No right to form a relationship with the person if they don't want to form a relationship with the child. Here in the United States, by contrast, there are sperm banks that offer that, often called open identification or known donor sperm banks. And then there are most sperm banks offer anonymous. So you, as a prospective parent, could choose which of the two you want. But if you choose the anonymous, your child will not find out who their genetic father would be. And so therefore, it's going to be very hard to sue. So most of the cases involving paternity imposed upon men who don't want to be uh, fa legal fathers, even though they're sperm donors, most of those involve known sperm donors. When a friend, family member, or in one case, somebody recruited off Craigslist donates sperm uh, to you, and we can talk about those cases. Let's talk about the Craigslist case. Yes, yeah, so this is a case from Kansas, and essentially two lesbians uh, want a sperm donor, and they post on Craigslist they want a sperm donor. This man, Moroda, ends up being their sperm donor. They don't list him on the birth certificate. They have a child, and then they end up on the welfare rolls. And as is allowed in uh, many states, when you end up on the welfare rolls, the state is allowed to try to defer to uh, its costs by finding whether there's a father they can go for paternity. And they basically, the women disclose that this man was a sperm donor, and they go after this man who was a sperm donor through Craigslist, had no other relationships with the child. Apparently just enjoyed doing this, enjoyed helping women in this way. But in any event, uh, these women, the Kansas Department of uh, Social Services or whatever department it is, goes and uh, claims paternity against the man and there's a legal fight over it. And at the end of the day, the court says, I'm sorry, you're actually the legal father of this child. And it doesn't matter what you two agreed to or what was said or what was believed, this child has a right to support and the right belongs to the child and parental behavior can't waive a right that belongs to the child when it's a right that belongs to the child. So he was held to be the legal father of so the child. So because he didn't have the formal protection of an anonymous sperm bank, 
he was on the hook. Yeah, I mean, in other states, so many states have a version of the Uniform Parentage Act in place that specifies that if you give sperm to a married recipient, some states doesn't have to be married, using a physician and doing a kind of, you know, because it turns out that actually the jokes about turkey basters are not untrue. Actually, at-home insemination can be done very well with a turkey baster. So we don't actually... Turkey baster, the... The thing you the, use for Thanksgiving. The and the, yep, okay. it turns out to be actually a perfectly good, there's other ways of doing it too, but there are many ways of doing at-home insemination that don't require a doctor actually. Uh, but we like getting the doctors involved because they engage in sperm washing and other stuff to get rid of impurities and diseases and to make sure that there's no HIV or anything like that. But in many states, if you, even if it's a known donor, as long as the recipient is married, you use a licensed physician for insemination, and uh, you, uh, well, th those are the two basic requirements. Essentially, by statute, there will be a cutting off of liability for the father. And some states also require that if the woman is married, her husband consent in writing to the insemination. You do that, the sperm donor's liability will be cut off. But in other states, there's no law, no statute that says that. And the states have had to struggle when there's no statute that applies about what to do. And what, what if they leave that state? Then, then they're, they're stuck under well, a different regime? Well, although here paternity findings are given full faith and credit across states. So once somebody is labeled to be legal father, and usually there's also a time limit for seeking paternity. So that hasn't been too much of a problem, the conflict of laws problem. What has been a problem, though, is if your state doesn't have a statute like this, and essentially in cases where people had romantic relationships, stopped romantic relationship, become friends, woman is single, woman asks the man to be the sperm donor, they sign an agreement to this effect, uh, but he goes to the birthday parties, he sees the kid, he forms some relationship. Then the woman changes her mind and wants to make him the legal father and get child support. In those cases, many of the courts have been willing to say, I'm sorry, uh, this is a right of the child, and uh, the right belongs to the child, and even though you had a legal agreement, that's going to be unenforceable as contrary to public policy. So I often tell people... So it has nothing to do with what you agreed with your partner or with your friend. Right. It's really a relationship you have with someone else. Yeah, and the law varies here state by state. So I always tell people who are thinking about using artificial insemination by donor, by a known donor, to learn more about the law and get good legal advice. But the best practices are use a licensed physician rather than doing it at home. In many states, that's going to help you avoid legal paternity and try not to have a post-birth relationship with the child. Because the more it looks like you're a father, the more it looks as though the state will say, actually, whatever your agreement said on paper, that's not the way it played out. That seems just against public policy. Because here, you're, you're basically encouraging less of a relationship with a child and someone who might end up caring for that child. No, I, I think that's exactly right. This comes from a deep-seated impulse to medicalize. There's a lot of shame about infertility and sperm donation. And the more in which it looks like a family and looks like people getting along, the more uncomfortable it makes courts who are uncomfortable with the idea of multiple parents or parental roles, for example, right? So they tend to be very reticent in doing this. And just to give one more hypothetical, which I think is interesting. So there's other states that say, okay, you had an agreement in place, that's enough, which seems to be, you seem to be leaning towards that as kind of a rule. I guess in this particular case, I might be more on the libertarian side. Okay, so here's a question though. Imagine that instead of doing it through artificial insemination, you did it through intercourse. So two people get together and we say, before we have intercourse, we sign a contract that says, should a child result from this intercourse, I'm not gonna be the legal father. Should that contract be enforceable? 
I hesitate to say it on camera, but, okay. I, I, but I think it should be enforced. It should be enforceable. I think most people have the attitude that that shouldn't be the law. So one interesting question is, why does it matter, especially if the two had a prior romantic relationship, right? Why does it matter if it's done through sexual intercourse versus artificial insemination? And this is the thing that makes the courts uncomfortable. If they agree to enforce the contract relating to artificial insemination, why shouldn't they agree to enforce the intercourse contract? And so they want to keep these two spheres of reproduction looking very separate. One, medicalized, doctors involved. The other is a good old-fashioned coitus. <laughs> good old-fashioned falls within the normal realm of the law, whereas the other one may be a little bit different. Right. Why don't we talk a little about donation in and of itself? When it comes to sperm donation, it's not always just giving. Sometimes donors are being paid that's right. For the, the sperm. In the US, actually, most donors are paid. Uh, and one of the interesting things, so there's a great book called Sex Cells, C-E-L-L-S, by my friend Renee Almeling, who's a sociologist. And she spent years inside sperm banks on the one hand and egg brokerages on the other. And sperm banking is actually often treated very much like an employment relationship. You have to be celibate, I think, for its 48 hours before, you no know, masturbation before, you uh, give a sample and they test your sample. You only get paid if your sample passes muster based on the sperm motility and other things about the sperm. So and, these And other restrictions, limited, you're not supposed to have had alcohol. Or that's right, there are limitations on drug use. use. And by the way, these men have been heavily screened on the front end. About 95% of people who try to become sperm donors get screened out. You have heart disease in your grandmother, for example, that could be a, a reason to screen you out in terms of these. So, but these, these men, it's very much like shift work the way they describe it. That if you want to get the maximum amount of payment in a week, which is three donations, there's like four hours of the week in which you can have masturbate or have sex, right? So it's very much treated like an employment relationship. Whereas the narrative with egg donation is it's about a gift helping to build a family. So very much playing on kind of gendered narratives appealing to the two sets of individuals. So for the men, it's get to work, we'll pay you for your your production, and for the women it's more, why don't you help another family enjoy the gift of life? Exactly. What kind of numbers are we talking about for, for selling sperm? Usually I'd say I think per donation, uh, you're paid less than $100. I think it's probably closer to the $50 range. I'd have to look it up, but I think it's something around that. But there are also premium sperm donors or, or, or premium sperm banks that pay yeah, so higher numbers. They've tried to do this. It was interesting. In the 70s, I think it was, there was the Center for Germinal Choice, which is meant to be the Nobel Prize winning sperm bank. And the idea was very eugenically impulsed. Let's get the best and brightest and make sure those genes are propagated. So this guy who started this tried to recruit Nobel Prize winners. Turned out the only ones that would participate were actually people of very uh, questionable moral character and other reasons <laughs> they would won Nobel Prizes. So then they lower the standards, any prize, lower the standards a little further, PhDs, and eventually it went out of business. But there's certainly, even in the current sperm market, there's currently, there's certainly who they select tends to be very well educated, tends to be taller, tends to be uh, good looking uh, in terms of the catalogs that are offered. And women can flip through and pick a sperm donor they like. Some of them have voice recordings of interviews of the person or more biographical information. So the catalogs show the actual donor. You're going through and saying, I like him, I like him, I don't like him. Exactly. And sometimes donors are sold out too because there are restrictions. You don't want to have too many children produced by a certain donor. Because so your 500, 500 right. child giver might not be. Because you fear, among other things, accidental incest, especially in a small community, right? 
So there's actually so sometimes a particular donor can be temporarily sold out or no longer being available, which is fascinating. So your line is out of out of stock. Yeah. At we this also import bank. the entire world imports a lot of sperm from Denmark. Actually, Danish sperm is a particularly in part because of they have uh, they don't have the anonymity uh, prohibitions they do elsewhere in Europe. So across the world. Danish sperm is heavily imported, frozen. It's not a, a preference for blonde hair and blue eyes? It may be that as well, too, but they've set up in Denmark and they've done a very good job of kind of providing sperm across the world. So in some ways, Denmark is populating all sorts of corners of the world <laughs> with its sperm, little Denmark. So Denmark, that's interesting. So here you have a, a small country that may be having a disproportionate uh, biological impact. Uh, yeah, impact on the world. Exactly. You mentioned in some countries that there is a right to access the, or at least know who the sperm donor was at a certain age. In the United States, we do have anonymous donors. How does that work? Yeah, so in the United States, uh, unless you've chosen one of these banks that has an open identification policy or process, it's totally anonymous. The anonymity, the, the person's name, identifying information is not legally available to the child. This doesn't mean that it's impossible to re-identify them. There's actually something known as the donor sibling registry, which is an online web portal where people who know their donor conceived get together and try to find out if somebody is a what they call a donor sibling, so a child born from the same donor, and then they try, like little detectives, to go back and try to piece together who the person might be, or maybe if the person's changed their mind, uh, the sperm donor might contact them that way. So we have similar traits and we're born around the same time. Exactly, and they may, they may try to piece together. And some of these people actually have family reunions as donor siblings, although the donor may not be there because they don't know who he is, but they know this person is uh, my half-sibling, which is a fascinating relationship. You mentioned incest laws. Yeah. Do incest laws apply to donor siblings? Yeah, most of the incest laws are defined genetically speaking, right? So there are but cases... But here we're talking about speculative Yeah, but I mean, siblings. but if you get genetically tested and you find out the two of you are genetically related. Now it turns out, by the way, that about five, the estimates are somewhere between three to eight percent of people are incorrect, forget about sperm donation, just incorrect in general about who their father is, right? So there's a three lot- Three to eight percent of the population. Yes. Total. Total. Misattributed paternity. That's the estimates from the, U, from the UK. That's a big number. That's a big number, right? So there may be actually a significant amount of accidental incest occurring even without sperm donation. But with sperm donation, this has been a concern, and so there have been proposals to limit the number of children any one sperm donor can produce to try to, to, to reduce it. But in the U.S., for the most part, there's one case, the Johnson case, but for the most part, other than that case, there's been no circumstance I'm aware of where the law has compelled uh, a sperm donor to be re-identified or a sperm bank to share the identity of that sperm. In the Johnson case, it was required. It was. This was a case where a child developed, I think it was autosomal poly cystic kidney disease, uh, and essentially a very bad disease, and it's something that should have been caught and screened out by the sperm bank. And basically, they sued the sperm bank, claiming the sperm bank was responsible. And the sperm bank offered as a defense that it was probably the sperm donor that faked it and the medical records and the like. And they knew the name of the donor, I think it was donor 275 or 276. And the Johnson said, well, if you're going to offer this as a defense and you've put this into evidence, we, need, we have a right to examine on the stand the sperm donor and have him say what he did or did not say to the sperm bank. So it wasn't because of some benefit that the father could give biologically. It wasn't because he could donate you know, a kidney or something no. like that. It was to help the litigation. Exactly. It was a tort lawsuit. 
And the court ultimately allowed an in-camera proceeding whereby the sperm donor would testify but limited the people who could be attendants and put a protective order in place such that the person's name would not be disclosed and would not appear in the record. But this is the only case I know of where the law in the United States has compelled someone. In one state, Washington state, there is a statute uh, that basically says if you're a sperm donor, you should make your name available and be, should be recorded and made available. So like the UK system, but there's a kind of a hole big enough to drive a truck through, which is to say, unless you as a sperm donor essentially opt out via an affidavit. So, it's so at not, any point you can say, I, I actually don't want that. That's right. So, so it doesn't really do what most of the European laws do, which is to put these registries in place where the child automatically has a right. Now, what's interesting about the UK and the other European countries is that the requirement is not that you tell your child they were donor conceived. It's that if the child decides on their own, whether they've been told or not, to call at age 18, they can get that information. But there's no obligation to tell a child. And in so the case, a child doesn't have a right to know who their biological father is. It, that's right. They have a right to call one of these registries if they figure it out or if they're told. And in the case of same-sex couples or single individuals, okay, it's easy. But many heterosexual couples will just pass as the genetic parents and may never tell their child. So there have been proposals to actually put a stamp on a birth certificate or something like that to notify a child that their donor conceived, which is a step further than they currently do in the UK. Which raises all kinds of new issues. Right. The obligation that we talked about in Europe in certain countries, the idea is for health reasons? Well, not really, because for before these registries, you were already required to put a lot of health information into the bank. And actually, in the United States, most of the health information is already tracked with anonymity. Now, there's, there is uh, some health benefit. For example, uh, if the person's alive, you can learn about what their current health state is and the like, although it could be that your sperm donor passed away long before you turned 18. Mostly, this is about giving you the knowledge of what your, who your genetic parent is. But what's interesting is this weird right. It's, I can know this person, but this doesn't require the person to answer my emails, answer the phone, meet me, or have any kind of relationship. So for some children who get this information and try to contact that sperm donor, it may be very disappointing. And indeed, it be even more painful than not knowing. And indeed, if the person's fathered 20 children, let's just say, it may be that the first one who contacts them, okay, they have a Sunday dinner or something, they get to know, they form a relationship. But it may be that the 18th person who tries to contact the person, they're really not interested. So different people have different experience, but advocates, donor-conceived children who've advocated for this in the United States say, it may be that we're disappointed, but we have a right to have this disappointment in our life. We have a right, just as any child does, for a father who's kind of estranged, not in the picture. One argument against that would be, look, what we want is a society where people are willing to donate, people are willing to give, or if they're willing to sell their sperm, they're willing to do it at a, a reasonable amount so that women can have a family if they want one. Does this increased level of disclosure, does that limit the, the people who are willing to donate, or does that increase the price? Yeah, so this is a contested empirical terrain. I'll tell you that the early studies from places like Sweden, Austria, the UK, show that the number of sperm donors available goes down in the short and medium term, at least the short term, some would say in the medium term, when you put in place one of these requirements of a registry. Now the question though is, could sperm banks become less selective? Could we instead recruit from a different donor pool? So there's some evidence that shows that middle-aged men who've already had children are much more willing to be known sperm donors. 
The answer often given, the sociological answer, is because they're much more comfortable, they understand what fatherhood is like or not like. The answer, I suspect, is they're closer to death. So if you calculate 18 <laughs> years from that, right? They're not that worried about This it. is the cynical answer from on my part. But there is some evidence that we could shift populations. I've actually done some empirical work where we've actually gone after the general population and now a new study we haven't published yet follow on with actual sperm donors and try to figure out how much more would we have to pay you in order to be a, a known sperm donor as opposed to anonymous sperm donor if the law were to change. And we find that uh, about, you probably have to be probably increased by about a third. You have to pay people about a third more, which is a lot, but sperm is already relatively cheap compared to, it's let's say, It's the cheapest eggs. part of the procedure, right. probably. That's right. We've been our most recent study, though, which is not yet published, of actual sperm donors, though. We find a significant population of current sperm donors, maybe 25 to 30%, actually would not participate at all at any price if the law were to change. So you probably would lose some sperm donors, and you'd have to pay those who are left a little bit more. But advocates for these changes would say, we understand that there's a cost, and a cost that'll be passed on to the consumer, but it's worth it for us to have this protection. How does it compare with adoption? Does adoption have this same right to contact a parent at a certain age? So advocates for openness have been much more successful with adoption across the United States. There's many more states now where there are open records laws, and if you're born after a certain uh, date, you have the right to kind of get information about your adoptive parents. But here you might say, when people give children up for adoption, the motivation is often one of great distress, emergency of need, and changing this facet of uh, adoption law won't discourage, won't change people who participate. People who are gonna give children up for adoption are gonna do it either way. Because they're doing it as a last resort. Often, not, you know, not everybody, it's a heterogeneous group. With sperm donation, uh, though you might say many of these people would say, I really don't need this aggravation, right? I'm making some money on the side. The other complication that distinguishes adoption from sperm donation is with adoption, the children will exist, the same children will exist no matter what you do. These children are coming, they're born. With sperm donation, if we changed when children are conceived or which people participate in sperm donation, we end up genetically speaking with different children, right? So how can you talk about one group of children being harmed if the action, the change in the law, would actually replace them with a different group of children? So that's a philosophical conundrum about thinking about harm and benefit when it comes to reproduction. A quick break for those who are earning CLE MCLE credit for this interview. The code is 082316. Again, that's 082316. And now back to the interview. So that's sperm donation. Some people also take their sperm and deposit it somewhere for their own use, for their future use. When it comes to frozen sperm, is that treated just like any other property? Yeah, so there have been some cases about this in the United States, uh, mostly in terms of decedents. There's also something known as po posthumous sperm retrieval. So actually after you've died, in a short window after you're dead, it's actually possible to go into your urethra and actually pull some sperm out and use that for insemination. So, so even been... if you hadn't frozen it, your, your, your wife or perhaps could try to, your children? Could try to do that, yeah. So in the United States, there have been a bunch of cases about this. They almost always, one involves a trust, but the other ones involve the Social Security Administration. And the question is, can posthumously conceive children, so children born after the father is dead, 
recover in Social Security and inherit the Social Security benefits and the like. And it varies state by state. The majority rule in the United States is uh, unless the person has explicitly indicated that they want their uh, frozen sperm to be used for insemination and that they want the child to be the beneficiary of their Social Security benefits, the child will not get those benefits. How about other benefits? What are, you know, I, I have a very explicit will that says my estate will be divided between my, my children, or yep. the, the heir, what do you call the something of my, my body. My issue, yeah. yeah. My estate will be di divided between my issue, or the issue of my body, and then my spouse decides to have another child after, yeah, after there, I die. Yeah, there have actually been a case, like there's one in New York from the New York, New York surrogate course with exactly this fact pattern, although it is actually a trust from the grandfather saying to my, grand, you know, to my descendants, and then the mother adds another descendant or two after the father has died, right? And so what, the brothers weren't happy with it? Or well, you know, again, this is the question where the estate, the trustee of the estate sues and the like. And here again, the, the majority rule, there has been as many cases on the trust side, has been that unless there's an explicit uh, express kind of acknowledgement and consent to use the sperm posthumously, that's not an issue. And here you might also say it matters when it's a trust what the settler, the trust originator's intent was. And you have this problem, I'm not a trust and estates expert, so I want to make sure I, I don't screw this up too much, but there's this problem about keeping it open, right? Because in theory, the trust has to close and be settled at some point, but if it ad infinitum, some of that sperm could be banked and used 100 years from now to produce to a new child, right? You might have a problem. So the courts have been pretty pragmatic about it. That might be it. some expensive sperm. That might be, get, get exactly, very valuable, especially with you know, compounding interests and the like. Um, but there are some interesting cases, so that's about when the law intervenes, but hospital ethics committees have struggled with, with, to allow people to go in and posthumously pull out some sperm, forget about who inherits and the like. And here there have been cases where essentially they want to look, even if there's not express consent, was there implicit consent? So for example, you knew you were going to die and you had many conversations with your wife that said, I want us to continue our, uh, our relationship and our choosing, creating children after I'm dead or I want you to that have my baby. That's pretty explicit. That's pretty explicit, although it's not written, right? And then what if you're banking sperm because you have cancer, you're at the end stage cancer, but you've said nothing about after you're dead, but you've been banking it uh, routinely with the idea that your wife will, will use it. How do we think about your consent in this case? And then one big philosophical question is, why should we care so much about your consent? You're dead. How can you be harmed? In what way can you be harmed if your wishes aren't followed uh, and the like? So philosophers have kind of struggled with thinking about how posthumous interests of individuals should continue or not continue. And so in, whether the philosophers would come down one way or another, the state has to make a determination. Yeah. And some of this revolves around the question of whether or not sperm can be treated as a marital asset. Yeah, so there have been cases more connected to what are called pre-embryos. So essentially, if sperm and you have egg, you can fertilize, create an embryo, and implant it right away. But often, you actually harvest a large number of eggs, and you only want to implant a few of them. So you freeze, you cryopreserve the rest of them. And there have now been, I think, nine, ten state Supreme Courts that have dealt with the following fact pattern. Husband and wife freeze a bunch of embryos. They get divorced. Wife wants to use them, husband opposes, or in one case, girlfriend wants to use it, uh, boyfriend opposes. And the question is, what do you do in this case? And most banks now will make you sign a disposition agreement or a disposition preference uh, specification where you'll say what you want. 
but a number of the courts have been unwilling to follow the agreement if it means making someone a genetic parent against their will. So basically they've said, I don't care what you agreed to, I don't care what you said, uh, there is a right not to be a genetic parent, and the man's desire not to be a genetic father trumps, and so the embryos will stay cryopreserved forever, or they'll be donated to research, but nobody will get to use them. That's been the majority of these cases have come out that way. Which but this is, this, this is a concept of forced paternity. And you could certainly imagine a state coming out a different way, saying, you know, this is a life or this is a child, yep. and a mother wants to bring it into the world, who will be to stop it? Yeah, actually, as it happens, there's an amicus brief in a case filed uh, in 2016 uh, from the Thomas More Law Center, which is a religiously affiliated legal uh, nonprofit. I think it's a nonprofit law firm. Uh, and essentially, they've made the argument that in this case, you should side. They've said uh, the state essentially has a law declaring uh, fetuses to be deserving of respect and certain kinds of rights of personhood. And so when you have this dispute between mother and father, you should side with the person who wants to implant the embryo. Side on the side of, of life. Exactly, of creating life. Now one possible way of solving the problem would be to say, okay, the embryo can be implanted, but then the man is not made the legal father if he doesn't want to. So he's made a genetic father, but not a legal father against his will. And then you have to have a question about why it's whether it's a cognizable interest to say I've been harmed or wronged by being made a genetic father, if not a legal father, which brings us back to the saliva case <laughs> and thinking about a harvesting that to produce children. Should you be bothered that there are genetic children out there of yours if you don't have a legal relationship with them? So there's all kinds of legal implications. Should you have the right to, to prevent it, injunctive relief? Should you have the ability to sue for some type of harm or should she or the child have the yeah. ability to sue you for your parental responsibilities? And there's some people who think that this is actually a matter of constitutional law, that we have a const not just a right, but a constitutional right not to be uh, a parent in these cases. And they associate it with the abortion cases uh, and also some of the very old cases like Skinner v. Oklahoma regarding rights to procreate. I actually think, and I've argued in uh, an article several years ago, that uh, this is not a matter of constitutional law. The Constitution doesn't protect such a right. Even though I think such a right should exist, I don't find it in the Constitution. But others disagree with me. I think there might be a constitutional right not to procreate that should decide these pre-embryo cases. Considering that so many of our judges tend to be of a little bit older generation, as the technology advances and as the, the distance between what normally goes into making a child and what can go into making a child gets broader, I think we'll see more rights being recognized. Yeah, and the Supreme Court has assiduously avoided, there are many petitions in these kinds of cases, they've never spoken one way or the other, whether we even have a constitutional right to use reproductive technologies, to use certain reproductive technologies, or any constitutional rights implicated by reproductive technologies. We know about old-fashioned coital reproduction and the way the Constitution treats it, but it's really an open terrain how the Supreme Court will interpret the Constitution when it comes to reproductive technologies. So it may just be state by state. Does the state recognize the best interests of the child even when the relationship with the biological father or mother is so tenuous? Yeah, the more you view this as a matter of family law rather than constitutional law, the more you think that we ought to have a thousand flowers bloom and the usual differences state by state in terms of family laws we do in other areas. But even right now, when it comes to sperm donation of known sperm donors, there's a patchwork uh, of states that react differently to the exact same fact pattern.
So I guess as an overview, you can, you can abandon your sperm and then it can be taken up for use by another. You can sell your sperm, you can store your sperm and leave it, bequest it, or it may become a central piece of a litigation. But regardless, the issues involved are complex and will be changing as the technology advances. Exactly. As always, it's amazing having you here to shed some light on this highly personal, but certainly cutting edge topic. Thanks for having me. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.